0: Hey, good morning, church. We're so glad you're here. Um, If you're new, if you're visiting with us, if you're a guest with us, a special welcome to you. Uh, I want to welcome you to ACFI. Uh, My name is Dan Min, and I serve as the pastor here at Alliance Christian Fellowship. And uh, as Ethan had mentioned, uh, this is Thon Weekend, and I do want to thank you for coming out here. Uh, Just by a quick show of hands, how many of you actually made it out to the BJC at some point this weekend? Okay, a bunch of you, okay. Um, I got to say, I was coming in through the hub, and it was it was such a funny scene to watch. You had students just passed out everywhere. Like I was like, there's, there's a sleeping student. there curled up on the floor there. And, and so I understand some of us are a little bit sleep deprived and uh, not like Allie and Jess are dancers, but um, uh, I do know that some of us are a little uh, tired this morning. And so hopefully um, you had your cup of coffee and hopefully I can, I can give you some content here that will be engaging enough to keep you uh, on track here. And so uh, if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Aaron uh, from our sponsored church, the State College Alliance Church, uh, was here. And uh, we, we like to do a little pulpit swap every now and then where he comes over here to this side of the campus and I'll go over to the Old Folks Church, and I preach there, and so uh, and, and that's always fun when we get to do that. But man, I got to tell you, there's no place like home. It's so good to be back here, uh, continuing this series, uh, Big Faith with you. And today we come to our sixth installment of this seven part series. Next week uh, we're going to close out the series, wrap things up, and uh, and then the Sunday after that we actually won't be having service here in the hub because that'll be the start of. Spring Break. I don't know if you realize, Spring Break is already around the corner. Hard to believe, but... Uh, and so next week, we'll be wrapping up the series, which means that we come to the sixth part of this series, Big Faith, here today. And as we come to uh, this message, I want to look at the next portrait of Big Faith as we, as we continue on, uh, sort of character by character through this series. And I want to do that looking at uh, Big Faith through the lens of Joseph. Joseph. So far, we pulled some faith principles from people like Abel and Noah, and we looked at Abraham and we looked at Abraham's legacy, uh, looking at the generational line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's what Pastor Aaron talked about last week. And today, I want to carry that generational line all the way through to one of Jacob's sons whose name was Joseph. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn here uh, because it's it's so seemingly insignificant. But Hebrews 11—that's where we've been pulling these Old Testament characters from, right? Noahs and their Abels and their Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these people are in there, including Joseph. Now. If you turn to Hebrews 11 again, I'm not going to have you bother, but you know, if we can get it up uh, there on the screen, we'll we'll do that. But um, it's almost laughable how little is mentioned on Joseph's life. In fact, there's only one verse that is mentioned regarding Joseph, and that one verse that's dedicated to Joseph. It's, it's, it's a little bit odd, if you ask me. And so uh, Hebrews 11, verse 22, it says this. I don't know, guys, are we able to? There, there we go. It's right up there. It, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Joseph's faith. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Like, What? I mean, I don't even understand what, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at there, and why, why is he in the hall of faith for that? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this one verse, because there's, there's another passage I want us to really anchor in on in Genesis uh, that I'm going to ask you to turn to here in just a little bit. Um, but, but let me just try to clarify what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at here, and why Joseph is in the great hall of faith. Remember that promise we, when we talked about Abraham a couple of weeks back? Remember that promise that God made Abraham in Genesis 12, right? Like, go leave your family, your country, your, all, all of that, and, and leave all that is familiar to go to the land that I will show you, right? You guys remember that? Give me a head nod if you were there. If you remember that, okay? Some of you, you're still sleeping. Okay, I got to do a better job. I got to do a better job. Okay. Um, now, in Genesis 12, God gives Abraham that promise. Now, all these generations later and all these these, uh, these family lines later, we come to Joseph's time. And would you know that they still have yet to enter the promised land? God makes this promise in Genesis 12. And we get all the way even up until the very end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. The story ends with Joseph on his deathbed. And they still have yet to enter the promised land. And as Joseph is laying in his deathbed, he's talking to his brothers He's talking to his brothers and he makes mention of the exodus of the Israelites. In addition to that, he gives explicit instructions concerning his bones to be carried into the promised land as they enter in. And we see this account in the very last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24 says this, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, that's what Hebrews 11 is referencing right there, right? That sounds resonant, right? That sounds familiar. Now, I don't know if you hear the big faith in Joseph's words there in Genesis 50. But what we see here is Joseph's unwavering faith in the promise of God, even if it is a whole three generations later, there seems to be this faith that Joseph has as he holds on to the promise of God and he is fully convinced that God is going to deliver on his promise, that God is going to do what he promised to do. And that's why the writer of Hebrews included that little piece on Joseph in Hebrews 11. But there is so much more to Joseph's story than just a little bit of instructions on what to do with his dead bones, his, his, his scraps. There is a little bit more to his story. And I want to go to a specific moment in Joseph's life where I think we can learn some big faith principles given our context here at Penn State, here at ACF. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to meet me at Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39 is where we're going to be looking here today. Uh, Claire, do we have some Bibles? Uh, If uh, you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand. We'll have some folks coming around. They can hook you up with the Bible here. And um, if you don't own a Bible, you can go ahead and take this home with you. Consider this our gift to you. We want you to have a Bible and be in God's Word. But uh, go ahead and find your place in Genesis 39. And as you do, let me just give you a quick crash course on Joseph's life. This is the First book of the Bible, Genesis 39, we come to Joseph's story. And uh, in this particular passage, we're going to kind of uh, jump into the middle of his story. But let me give you a crash course on Joseph's life if you're unfamiliar with his story. This is, this is like sort of the real brief version. This is the trailer of Joseph's life, okay? God has his hand on Joseph's life. From a very early age, from, a very, uh, from very early on, God has his hand on Joseph's life. And Joseph has 10 older brothers. Um, And and out of sheer jealousy and envy of these brothers, Joseph's 10 brothers rally together and decide, upon seeing God's favor on Joseph's life, again, being jealous and envious, decides to sell his brother off to slavery. Great brothers, right? I mean, this is a great, awesome, brother. thanks for having me back, bro. You know, like that's, and he sends them off, and, and, and basically, along the way, there are these folks that come, out, come along Joseph's, uh, the pit, that, the literal pit that Joseph was thrown in. They pull him out of that pit, and, the, and Joseph then gets sent off to Egypt uh, to be sold as a slave. He ends up in an Egyptian official's home, and this official's home is someone who works for Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, at the time. And so as he's working at the home of his Egyptian master, he's falsely accused of a crime, and this is the story we're going to look at here in Genesis 39. He's falsely accused of this crime that he did not commit, and in light of this accusation, he's immediately thrown into prison. And as he's in prison, he's approached by Pharaoh with a series of dreams that he's he's having that he can't interpret he goes to all of his counselors and all of his advisors and none of them can interpret his dreams for him. And so he goes to Joseph because he gets word that there's this guy in prison, this, this Hebrew Israelite guy, and he, he's known to interpret dreams. He has the hand of God on his life. And so Pharaoh goes to him and says, hey, Joseph, I'm having all these dreams. I don't know what to make of it. And Joseph, with the help of God, by the grace of God, he begins to interpret these dreams for Pharaoh. Upon seeing this, Pharaoh is so blown away by these encounters and seeing God's hand on Joseph's life. uh, Pharaoh decides to release Joseph from prison, but not only does Pharaoh release Joseph from prison, he promotes him to the very highest rank there is. He is immediately advanced and, and promoted to the second in command right under Pharaoh himself to rule over all of Egypt. So if you're getting this, Joseph goes from a kid who is betrayed by his brothers to a slave who is wrongfully imprisoned to then the most powerful ruler in Egypt right beside Pharaoh. I mean, this is the ultimate rags-to-riches story. This is like, when you look at it, it's like, this is the story that we all want to live besides being sold into slavery and being betrayed by our brothers. Like, this is the story. But the real compelling aspect of the story, listen now, is not that he went from rags-to-riches. We all love an underdog story. That's why we're rooting for the Phillies, right? Even if you weren't a Phillies fan, you're like, darn those patriots, right? That's why we we love great underdog story. And this is the greatest underdog story. But listen, the compelling thing about this story isn't that it's an underdog story. It's not that he went from rags to riches. It's how he went from rags to riches. You see, every step along Joseph's journey, what you see is that it's his faith that carries him through to the next level and on to the next level, and on to the next level after that, and all the way up until the end, we see God's hand on Joseph's life because Joseph has this unwavering faith, this big faith in God. Now, I want to look at one piece of this journey where we see a reflection of this big faith coming through, and I think this story will speak deeply to us, and it's found in Genesis 39. Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to read the whole chapter, because this is, this is such a good story, and as you read it, I mean, I mean th- th- this is just like, this is some Fifty Shades stuff right here. It's, it's compelling, it is provocative, and I think, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. If you've never read this story, uh, you'll, you'll appreciate it. By the way, I'm not condoning Fifty Shades, okay, just... Just to clarify, just to clarify. But you'll see what I'm talking about here. In Genesis 39, we're gonna start from the top. Okay. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Again, this is him being pulled out of the pit and being sold into slavery in Egypt. Verse 2: the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. The story continues on, and it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I can relate. I get you, Joseph. Man, I understand. Joseph was handsome. I'm just kidding. He was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. And she, was like, she was checking him out. You know, like He's a fine-looking young man. And she said hey, how are you doing? No, she doesn't say that. She says, lie with me, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you had brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's the word of the Lord. Friends, the question I want us to ask ourselves here today is this. How do we exercise big faith in the face of temptation? This is a story of temptation. This is a story where Joseph is faced, face-to-face with temptation. And the question that we, and you and I, as people of God, need to grapple with is how do we exercise big faith in the temptation? Friends, how many of you know we live in a world full of temptation? Amen? I mean, we, you, don't, you don't need to go searching for that. Temptation is all around us. By the way, let me just pause right here and just say most of what uh, this story entails is, is one of sexual temptation. And and that's kind of where I want to spend most of our time here today uh, because I, I, I think it speaks deeply to our culture, to our generation, to our context, and specifically to where many of us are. But how many of you know, the the principles that we're going to be talking about today and the principles that we're pulling from this story can apply to any temptation you face. The temptation to lie, the temptation to cheat, the temptation to gossip and slander, the temptation to take shortcuts and, and to, take, uh, to, 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 to do the easy thing when, when the harder thing is the right thing to do. The temptation of, of anything you fill in the blank can be applied with the principles that we're going to be talking about here today. But with that said, the nature of this temptation that Joseph is facing is one of sexual temptation. And for those of you who've been around ACF long enough, you know that we're not shy about talking about sex and talking about sexuality and talking about matters of, uh, of, of things that are uh, that our world doesn't seem to be shy about talking about. And so if we want to connect and interface and make a difference in our culture, we got to understand, one, our culture, but two, understand God's call in our lives in the midst of the culture that we are in. And, and so I, I'd say that saying, man, we live, and for those of you who are Christ followers and trying to pursue a life of purity and sexual morality and all these things, you know how hard it is to ward off temptation. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or stand up because I'm not going to out you here, but if you're in a dating relationship, if you've ever been, even if you're single, you know how hard it is to remain sexually pure in mind and in spirit and in act. We live in a uh, hyper-crazy sex-driven culture, and here's the crazy thing. Here's the tragedy of it all. It's not that our culture is hyper, this like super sex-driven culture. It's that our culture, and even the church, dare I say, seems to be desensitized to temptation. We just don't see temptation as a thing anymore. We're just not, we're like, "That's, that's not... I don't, even, I don't even have a category for temptation, sexual temptation in particular. I mean, when we've got shows like Temptation Island or Bachelors in Paradise, right, like where you throw a bunch of single people on an island and pump that island with some unlimited booze, you better believe there are going to be some bad decisions that are made on that show. And you want to know something? TV producers say, hey, the better the decision, the better the TV. And guess what? We as American viewers, we eat it up. We eat it up, right? We love watching things like this. The thought of fighting temptation isn't even a thing anymore. In fact, I heard a, I heard a, st- a statistic the other day. I don't know if this is true. You can fact check me on this or not or whatever. I, I'm not claiming it to be true, but I, it's, it's interesting. Nonetheless, I heard this fact that uh, this current Winter Olympics out in Pyeongchang, South Korea. What, what, my people? Right? Um, the, 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 they said that this particular Winter Olympics broke the record for how many condoms were distributed to the athletes, the competing athletes? Broke the record. I mean, that, that says something about our culture. I don't know what it says quite yet, but, but that says something about our culture. And perhaps at the very least, it says that we are a hyper-sexually charged culture. And it seems that Potiphar's wife was ahead of her time. It seems that she, was, she seemed to have shared the same sexual ethics as our culture did. But listen now, Joseph didn't. And yet Joseph is the only one recognized in this grand story of God's people as someone who is, is recognized for this big, extraordinary faith. And so I want to look at the story a little bit closer and ask ourselves, what did Joseph do? How, how did Joseph live in, in, in the context of a hypersexually charged wife of Potiphar? How did he exercise big faith in the face of temptation? And number one is this. You need to identify temptation. You need to identify. If you want to exercise big faith in the face of temptation, you need to identify temptation. Now, this might sound a little bit odd for some of us, but I want you to see this to be true. That temptation is rarely ever in your face. Temptation is rarely ever in your face and blaring its horns at you. Most of the time, temptation is walking past you day after day as you're fulfilling your duties in your master's home. You see, Potiphar's wife was just passing by Joseph day after day, eyeing him out, checking him out, as he's working in the home, minding his own business. You see, part of the reason why so many people fall into temptation isn't because it's screaming in their face. It's because they fail to recognize it when it comes, and it blindsides them. It takes them completely off track, and so I want to help you see temptation for what it is today. I want to expose temptation in all its ugly glory, and so let me briefly give you three aspects of temptation. Temptation is subtle, temptation is constant, and temptation is deceptive. Temptation is subtle, Temptation almost goes unnoticed if you're not paying attention. Again, that's why temptation so easily brings people down because it can so easily blindside us. That's why the writer of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter, says to us in in chapter 5, we we spent some time last semester looking at this passage. It tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And isn't that what temptation is? When you look at the story of Abel, we looked at his story a couple of weeks ago, and God said, sin is crouching at your door. The picture that is given there is one of a predator waiting for his opportunity to pounce when you least expect it. It's subtle. It's subtle in nature. It prowls around seeking to attack us at any moment. Again, temptation rarely yells in our face. It's subtle. And so if you're not alert and paying attention, the subtlety of temptation can easily overtake you. It's subtle. But number two, temptation is constant. I don't know if you, ca- if you caught verse 10 of this passage. Verse 10, notice what this says. And as she, Potiphar's wife, spoke to Joseph, what does it say now? Day after day, day after day, she spoke to Joseph, but he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Listen, friends, temptation never takes a day off. Temptation never goes on vacation. Temptation never gets tired of knocking on your door. It never gets tired of speaking to us day after day, day after day. I'll often hear a couple say to me, they, they say something to the effect of, oh, Dan, it's fine. We can be alone together. It's not a big deal. Like we're, we're strong enough, right? Like we we can be alone together. We're not gonna cross any lines. Don't worry that our clothes will be on, our body parts will be in place, and our hands will be on behind our back. And trust me, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, and we can behave ourselves. Some of you have said that to me in this room, okay? I'm not and and, and, and if you know, if you know me, this is what I say oftentimes. Number one, friend, you're not as strong as you think you are. And I can say that from experience. Because I've said, though, I gave all the excuses under heaven to my mentors and to my pastors. I said, Pastor, I'll be fine. My girl and I, we're good. We love Jesus. Like We go to church and we do our quiet times. We'll be fine. We can behave ourselves, right? And so I say, friend, first of all, you're not as strong as you think you are. Don't give yourself too much credit. But number two, just because you don't feel the temptation now doesn't mean it's not there. Can I just say that again? Because a lot of us are feelers. We go by feeling. I don't feel tempted now. Yeah, it's because you're not in the, uh, on her living room couch right now cuddling up and watching a romantic movie. Yeah, because you're talking to me. If you started feeling romantic, feelings talking to me, I'd be concerned. But of course, of course you don't have those feelings now. But just because you don't feel it now doesn't mean it's not there. Because let me tell you, temptation is constant. It never gives up. It will always knock on your door And day after day, it will speak to you as Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day. Number three, temptation is deceptive. Did you notice the deceptiveness of Potiphar's wife? In verses 13 to 19, she goes into this whole elaborate explanation of how Joseph came onto her. It was him, it was the Hebrew that you brought in, Potiphar. This is your dumb mistake, husband. Like, you shouldn't have brought him into my home. And she goes into this whole explanation of how how this story unfolded. And what she does there, right there in that moment, is she completely warps the truth. And that's precisely what temptation does. It warps the truth. It warps the truth. Let, Let me put it differently. Temptation promises us things that it can never deliver on. Temptation promises us things that it can never deliver on. It says things like, hey, it's all right. Go ahead, try it. It's not going to hurt you. In fact, I promise you, you'll, be, you'll feel better for it, for doing it. Just, just do it. Live in the moment, right? No one's watching. In fact, no one even cares. No one's watching. No one's keeping tabs on you, so just go ahead. It's only this one time everyone's doing it, and so why hold back now? You see, friends, if you fail to recognize the deceptive nature of temptation, you're going to buy into all of that false truth. You're going to buy into it. But you've got to see, temptation always promises us things that it cannot deliver on because temptation always, it always warps the truth. In fact, if you, if you want to do kind of a study on this, you can look at the, uh, the, the 40 days of fasting and prayer that Jesus had in the desert where he was being tempted by the, by the devil, He promises Jesus all these things that the devil can't deliver on. And and, and the Lord sees that. Jesus sees that. He's like, no, I'm gonna call you on that bull. That's you can't. Temptation warps the truth. It always what? Because it's deceptive in nature. Now, if you know that temptation is all of these things: subtle, constant, deceptive. If you expose temptation for what it is, you'll be able to better identify when it comes and how it comes. And as a result, you can better guard yourself against it when it seeks to blindside you. You can't guard yourself against something you can't see. You can't. When a car is coming up on your blindside, you can't see it. That's why accidents happen. That's why collision happens, because you can't see it. You cannot guard yourself against things you cannot see. And so you need to identify temptation. But listen, friends, it's not enough to just identify temptation. Number two, here it is. You need to make a decision. You need to make a decision. You see, Joseph made a clear decision in the face of temptation. We read in verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment. By the way, another aspect of, of temptation not only is it subtle, constant, and deceptive, it is also opportunistic. It finds the right moment Right time to catch you in the right moment of weakness and vulnerability, and it will pounce on you. It will pounce on you. And so you got to gauge your soul every now and then. you got to check your soul every now and then. How's my soul doing? Do I feel filled up with the Holy Spirit of God? Do I feel connected to the people around me, to the community of God around me? Am I feeding my spirit in a way that I wouldn't be vulnerable to the attack of the enemy? But here he is, Joseph, alone in the house, None of the men were in the house, and she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me, lie with me. Do you notice, by the way? I know I keep going off on sidetracks because I, I, it's not on my notes, but I just find it interesting. That the same thing, that the same line that the tempter says is Lie with me, lie with me. Sometimes the temptation, when it's constant, you will become numb to it. And the, 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 the very thing that the tempter came to you to tempt you with. What startled you at first, you will become accustomed to, and that's where we become desensitized to the temptation. Also, temptation isn't very creative, is it? Lie with me, lie with me, lie with me, just lie with me, just lie with me. He just says, lie with me. But listen now, listen, look at what he did. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Now, folks, you need to understand the garment that this text is referencing isn't like you know, like his handkerchief that he had in his back pocket and on his way out, she was like, yoink, yoink, you know, like it wasn't like a scarf around his neck and that she grabbed onto and and, and pulled off his neck. It was his clothes. It was his clothes that she grabbed. And when he ran out of that house, he ran out naked. He ran, he fled naked. You know, Nicole and I will often advise couples, you know, to, to not be alone together. Don't be alone together. Okay, listen, if you're going to be alone together, make sure it's in public places, but, but don't be alone together in private places. And I know, hearing that, you're like, damn, that is so super prudish of you. Like, come on, like, you know, like, you, we, we say these things. In fact, Nicole and I have been known to give advice based on Joseph's approach. Get out of the house. Get out, just flee. Get out of the apartment. Get out of her bedroom. Get out of his living room. Just get out of the house. And these dating couples will often say to us, come on, guys. Seems a little drastic, doesn't it? Is that really necessary? And I think we could look at Joseph's story and his actions and say something very similar. Come on, Joseph. Seems a little drastic. R- running out naked, you know. Like, come on. Like, how, is it really necessary? I, I mean, did, was that the necessary course of action? Couldn't you have listen, Joseph? Couldn't you have sat Potiphar's wife down for a nice conversation and been like, hey, Mrs. Potiphar, I really think we should probably not do this. It's probably not the best idea that we proceed in this course of action. Besides, you really want to do that to Mr. Potiphar. I mean, he's such a a nice man. Do Do you hear how silly that sounds? Do you hear how absurd that sounds? And yet, that's exactly what we do in the face of temptation. We rationalize. We reason And when we say all of these things, and yet the best response, listen now, church, the best response to temptation might be the one that seems most drastic to us. Because that might be the very thing that saves your soul. That might save you from a, a life of heartache and headache. You need to make a decision. Because if you don't, the temptation will make it for you. That's the bottom line. If you don't make a decision, the temptation will make it for you. And let me tell you, Temptation is not your friend. It don't got your back. It's subtle, it's constant, it's deceptive, it's opportunistic, and it will make the decision for you if you don't make the decision. Not only do you need to identify temptation and make a decision, but here's the last piece of this you need to develop intimacy. You need to develop intimacy. Now, in the context of what we're talking about, I don't want you to confuse this as intimacy with your partner, intimacy with, you know, your, your, your dating partner. Listen, Potiphar's wife was trying to be sexually intimate with Joseph, but Joseph was too busy developing his spiritual intimacy, his spiritual connectedness, his relationship with God. I love Joseph's response here to Potiphar's wife at her first pass at him. In verse 8, I don't know if you caught this, It says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Listen now. Here's his heart. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, don't miss this. Do you see Joseph's real motivation to fight temptation?" At first, it would seem like he's concerned with saving face with his boss. I don't want to do this because I don't want to get in trouble with my boss, with Potiphar. I, it seems like he would, he, he's doing this because he's concerned that he would, he would do Potiphar wrong by doing this. But that's not the real motivation behind Joseph's heart in fighting temptation. It's actually his heart for God. In other words, he cares more about offending God than he does Potiphar. That's huge. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against, not Potiphar, not the men of his house, not, not, not that I would bring shame onto his house name, but how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And if you study Joseph's life all throughout Genesis, there are countless instances and moments where he could have compromised on his intimacy with God to win the favor of man, but he didn't. But he didn't. He never does. Over and over and over and over again, what you see is Joseph choosing intimacy with God over whatever temptation is standing in his way. That's why God gives him so much stinking favor, right? It's, it's like, God. okay, Joseph, you, you're, you're, you're being obedient. You've you got a heart after my own heart. You're going after me. You're, you're seeking to live out this big faith and all these things. And God begins to increase his influence, and his platform even in Egypt until he finally takes the rank of second in command. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound contradictory to everything I just said up until this point. For some of us, you need to stop focusing on fighting temptation. You need to stop focusing on fighting temptation. I want you to hear me. This is important okay? I'm not saying temptation goes away, okay? Right? Like, we, we want to give temptation its due credit, but we don't want to overcredit it. We, we don't want to give the devil too much credit. So, so, let me just say this. Fighting temptation is not to be your primary focus and my primary focus. It, it's not. Sometimes, I wonder if we're so focused on fighting temptation that we lose sight of our primary focus. You see, in Matthew chapter 22, there's this little passage where a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he's trying to like pin him. That's what the teacher of the law tried to do. All this, they're trying to pin him. And the teacher of the law comes to him and says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? We got all these 600 and plus commandments that Moses gave us and all these things that the Old Testament commands us to do and all these things that the book of Leviticus and all these things that tells us, God, like if you were to boil all of those commandments down, what is the greatest commandment? In other words, This teacher of the law is asking Jesus, What's the end goal? What is my primary focus in life to be? And Jesus' response isn't, Well, you gotta make sure you fight temptation well. You gotta make sure you never let the devil win. You gotta make sure you come out on top when you're facing temptation. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, what he says, It's something that these people have been hearing all throughout. Remember, these are are good Jewish people who have learned the law of God all throughout their life. And he quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus simultaneously. And he says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? You want to know what your end goal is? You want to know what your primary focus ought to be? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the end goal. For some of us, we have made the end goal to not sin, to fight temptation, to not allow the devil to win, but but in so doing, we're playing defense. God never called the church to play defense. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. We are called to be on the offense. How do we play offense? It's not that we go charging into the gates of hell and take our axes and say, devil, be gone, you know, and start slicing and slicing, you know. That's not how we play offense. The way we play offense is we place our focus rightly on the person of Jesus. We place our focus on developing intimacy with Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Some people are so focused, some of us are so focused on fighting to Temptation that we forget the heart of God is not that we fight. Temptation first and foremost, but our first priority is to be in love with Jesus. You want to know the beautiful thing, folks? Here's the beautiful thing about all this. When you fall in love with Jesus, your taste for sin begins to change. Some of you who've walked with Jesus long enough, you know this to be true. Sin doesn't quite go away. Temptation doesn't quite go away, but your taste for sin begins to change. The more you're in love with Jesus the less you begin to want to bleed and, and, and fall into those moments of temptation when the devil comes around. And so when you focus on developing intimacy with God, your love for Jesus becomes larger than your love for sin. And all of a sudden, running out of the house naked doesn't seem like such a drastic response after all. It's like, because what other option do I have? I want to please God in everything that I do. And so I'm going to do what it takes to live in this big faith. Make the first thing first and the rest will follow. I'm gonna invite the worship team forward and as they get set up to close us out, I wanna ask you the question, how do we exercise big faith in the face of temptation? Well, it's real simple. I mean, this, this probably isn't the only way or a comprehensive way, but I think when we look at Joseph's story, we need to identify temptation and see for what it is. It's subtle, it's constant, it's deceptive it's opportunistic and then we've got to make a decision realizing that we have that we may have to take some drastic measures even if it is running out of the house naked now let me just let me just quickly say this and we're gonna wrap up here in just a a moment with this closing song but let me just say this this piece of making a decision is not just in the moment of temptation this is important okay this is like worth just even your time coming to church here um Making a decision in the face of temptation is not really the key. Joseph made a a decision, a split-second decision in that moment when he was face-to-face with Potiphar's wife. You want to know why he was able to make that decision? Because he made a series of decisions leading up to that big decision. Here's here's something that... um, Nicole and I will do, again, with, with dating couples. Again, I'm, for all you single people, I'm sorry. I don't mean to single you out or anything like that. But, but this is, again, if, if ever you find, find yourself in a dating relationship, here's something that we suggest our couples to do. In fact, for those of you who were in our couples life group uh, last year, we, we did this exercise. We call it the box exercise, largely because it's an exercise with a box, and we can be very creative. Um, and so here's, here's what we say. We say, hey, boyfriend, girlfriend, dating couple, This box represents your relationship. You've got to make a decision what you want to keep outside of this box. Things that you say, I don't want this to be part of my relationship. I don't want this to be representative of my relationship. These are things that I want to keep outside of the box, like sexual impurity and, and all these ungodliness and, you know, slander and gossip and all these things, talking bad about other people. And like, I want to keep all that outside the box, Again, that's fighting temptation. You also need to develop intimacy. And so we say to them, so what do you want inside your box? What are the things that you want representing your relationship? What are the things that you, when you look back on your dating relationship, you, you, you say, we didn't just fight off and ward off sexual temptation, but, but we built a relationship on something significant, something valuable. So what goes inside the box? You see, you've got to make a decision way before the temptation hits you, and it's in, only that, in that process of making that decision that you're, able to, you're going to actually able to make the appropriate decision in the heat of the moment. Because let me tell you, if you have not made those series of decisions, do you know how hard it is to make a decision in the heat of the moment? When your hormones are raging, and you're like, you're, you're flushed in the face, and you're like, This feels right, but I know in my spirit it's wrong. You know how hard it is to turn the other way in those moments? Single guys. Struggle with pornography. You know this to be true, right? It's like I know I I know I thought thought I'd learned my lesson last time, but I just keep being drawn to this. It's hard. It's hard. And I I, I, I listen, as your pastor, I don't condemn you. I, don't, I, I, I empathize with you. I'm with you. It's hard. But you can't make a decision in the heat of the moment. That's why it's so important that you've got to make a decision. Take a cold shower and then make a decision. Make a decision that says, this is the kind of life I want to lead. This is the kind of man I want to become. This is the kind of woman I want to become. This is the kind of person that I want to be. Again, you can't make that decision in the the moment, so you've got to make a decision prior to that. And I hope part of that decision is to develop intimacy with your father. Hopefully, the story of our lives isn't that we get to the pearly gates and we say, God, I fought, te- I fought all that temptation well, right? It's like, but, but I never knew you. I mean, yeah, thank you. Good job. You're so busy fighting off all this temptation that you forgot the primary focus, the primary call to love me, to build a relationship with me, to pour into this walk with me. You forgot about that. Church, may that never be said of us. May that never be said of us. May we be a people who is so tethered to the heartbeat of Jesus, and through that lens, may we view temptation. Amen? We don't want to view temptation by any grid. We want to view temptation through the filter of our intimacy with Jesus.